digital transformation case studies, Tech Titans, the digital transformation game show, and a new book on digital transformation. Those are just a few of the topics we're going to cover here today in episode number 128 of Transformation Ground Control. This is Transformation Ground Control. Your source for all things business, technology, strategy, and change. If you're growing your business, leading change within your organization, or undertaking any sort of operational or technology change initiative, this podcast is for you. This show covers what you need to know about digital transformation, organizational change, operational improvement, and business growth. Five, four, three, two, one. And now, here's your host, Eric Kimberly. Hello, welcome to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 128. This is the podcast that has everything to do with digital transformation, including the people, process, technology, and strategy aspects of transformation. My name is Eric Kimberling. I'm the CEO of Third Stage Consulting and also your co-host or your host here today. And with me, as always, is my co-host, Kyler Cheatham. Kyler, welcome back to the show. Thanks for having me. Excited for today's episode. Excited to have you here too and excited to have the audience here. We've got a great episode for you today. Uh, before we jump into today's agenda, just a couple of quick logistical things. First of all, uh, this is a weekly podcast series that is released every Wednesday. Um, secondly, you can find this podcast on audio podcast platforms throughout the world. Uh, all the leading podcast audio podcast platforms, you'll find us there. Again, it's called Transformation Ground Control. And you can also find new episodes every Wednesday streaming to LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter. So if you don't already, be sure to follow myself and or Third Stage consulting on those social media outlets to get updated every time new uh, episodes are released. So great show for you today. We've got, uh, we're going to start off with some audience questions and we'll, we'll answer some of those questions. We'll get into a couple of opening hot topics in the opening segment. Uh, those hot topics are going to center on the digital transformation of Malta, the country uh, Malta in Europe. We'll also talk about the business transformation of NASA, um, sort of a case study there, two different case studies there we'll talk about. And then later in the show, we are going to have a game show sort of a format with some of the consultants from the third stage team and myself and Kyler are going to uh, kind of go through uh, some questions, uh, common questions about digital transformation in a fun and engaging format. We'll take your uh, questions and comments as well. So be sure to stick around for that. We'll have a few different guests on the show uh, here later today. And then last but not least, after we have our game show segment, we're going to play you a clip uh, of an interview that Kyler did with me uh, to help finish out uh, my new book, which is being released here at the end of August. Uh, it's a new book called The Final Countdown. And in that book, uh, one of the last remaining pieces that I had to write and that we had to write was a segment that was a case study, basically. And so uh, we're going to talk a bit about uh, that case study. And I will play you that clip of the interview um, for the book and uh, give you kind of a preview of what to expect in that book. So be sure to stick around for that. But before we jump into our guests in those later segments, let's uh, let's talk about what some of these questions are you have in store for us, Kyler. Absolutely. Well, these are some audience questions that um, our our overall network posts on Eric's uh, YouTube channel, uh, Facebook channel, LinkedIn channel, TikTok channel. And what we do is we go in and aggregate them. So if you do have a question, you can either pop it live in the stream right now and we'll um, address it in future episodes, or you can um, put it in one of his social medias or third stage comment section with the hashtag ask Eric. 
and we will pull it for you each week um, and ask him live. And he's never seen these, so we put him on the spot. All righty. So this question is specifically about um, some of the content you do around contracting with different vendors and systems. Okay. Is there a way to set guardrails for agility in a contract? Is, is there a podcast that discussed that in more detail? And I did for this user, Eric did comment a podcast that we actually featured Marcus Harris, but I think it's an interesting piece to understand when it comes to contracting and agility and how that relationship is made. Yeah, it's a great point and great question. I know uh, Marcus Harris, when he was on this podcast uh, being interviewed by us, he was talking about the difficulty mm-hmm. having a tight contract when you have an agile approach, which agile by definition by nature is meant to be nimble, flexible, you adjust, you pivot, and that those two things are in conflict. You know, the need to have a, a really tight SOW or statement of work, a really tight budget or or a not to exceed number. Um that is in conflict with the spirit of agility, but yet most organizations, when they deploy new technologies and most software vendors, when they provide their methodologies for implementation, to some degree, they're typically including some form of agile uh, in those proposals, in in those contracts. So I'd say probably the best way to put the guardrails that you need is, first of all, not to not to try to boil the ocean in one contract or one statement of work. So in other words, a lot of times organizations want clarity on, let's call it a three-year implementation. It's going to be a three-year, you know, 36-month implementation. It's going to cost millions of dollars or millions of euros or whatever currency you're in. And they try to tighten, keep that really tight when they're, the unknowns are there. You know, So there's unknowns that we don't know, but yet we're trying to lock in a three-year contract with a budget or a fixed fee or, you know, some sort of time, um, time specific milestones, which is all fine and good. I mean, we all want clarity. We want that governance. We want the controls in place, but then when you introduce agile, that conflicts with that. So one thing we typically recommend is if you are, especially if you're going with an agile, uh, sort of, a an approach, you can break up your statements of work into more piecemeal phases. So in other words, you could have a blueprint or planning phase that would be X number of hours, X number of dollars or euros or whatever the budget is, X amount of time. And then once you get to the end of that stage, then you might have another, you know, another phase one uh, contract based on what you've learned in that initial contract. So there's, there's ways like that, that you can, you can use contracts to reinforce the spirit of agile without totally giving up the controls that you want in place. The hard part, though, is if, you know, to get the budgetary approval, a lot of times you have to look further out than just the first phase or the second phase. You have to look at the whole project and get budgetary approval there. And I think the key there is to manage internal expectations that this is an estimate. Maybe you give a wide range of potential costs and potential time, and you refine that time estimate in the budgetary estimate as you go through different phases of the project. And you have to obviously make sure your internal communication and alignment stays in sync there. So those are some ways that you can sort of navigate or walk that tightrope or that gray area balancing act of trying to be agile, but at the same time have controls and contractual mechanisms to control the project. Absolutely. And it sounds like such a, a key piece of that is having that independent and technology agnostic review of those statements of works or those contracts to really garner that expertise to ensure that you know what those guardrails look like from someone that has that specific experience and that professional skepticism that we always recommend when it comes to looking at contracts and really re- remembering everyone involved has an agenda. So definitely important yeah. there. Yeah. And just be be sure you're, you're aware of uh, 
the need to reconcile any uh, discrepancies in in your philosophy. So in other words, your procurement, your contracting department might have one philosophy and way of doing things, but the way you run the project might be different and might conflict with that. So you just have to recognize that there are likely to be tensions or conflicts in different priorities, and you've got to reconcile that and make sure you're all on the same page before you get too far into the project. Yeah, that's a, a great point. Internal agendas as well. Um, this question is we implemented our ERP during COVID with a huge lack of manpower because of work shortages. It was very stressful and each staff member had to take on additional work. How do we be sure we're now optimizing after the dust has settled? Yeah, it's a great question. I think first of all, you know, it's it you need to get internal alignment on the need and the want to optimize. A lot of times organizations as a whole are skeptical, they're not skeptical, but they're they're hesitant to spend much time on optimization because they've just gone through all the the pain and heartache and the cost and the the challenges with a transformation or an implementation. And the last thing they want to do is extend the project and, and keep going. They, they sort of want to wipe their hands clean and move on and go back to their day jobs. That's sort of the, you know, a generalization of how a lot of organizations function uh, during and after an implementation. So the key is to really, um, is, is to get that internal alignment and focus on optimization. And one of the biggest, most effective ways you can do that is to assess and analyze and, and demonstrate you know, where you're leaving business value on the table. Because most implementations, if not all, on day one, day 30, day 60, day 90, or whatever, you know, months and weeks after an implementation, you're not realizing the full value potential of the technology. Not because the technology doesn't work, but typically because you didn't deploy it perfectly. People aren't using it perfectly. There's some configuration you could clean up. There's a lot of different reasons and root causes why that is. But generally speaking, even the best run implementations are going to have a certain amount of business value that just isn't realized on day one or day 90 or whatever. And you never will realize it, by the way, if you just let it let it roll, if you just let it ride and assume that you're going to coast and you know be on autopilot from here on out, you're just never going to get that business value. So you have to have some sort of deliberate focus on assessing where the potential areas of value are and identifying the root causes that are holding you back from getting that value. And what, what always fascinates me about the organizational dynamic of of the hesitation to go through that exercise is if you spend this amount of time and money on an implementation, it takes this much time and money to optimize. You know, it's so, it's such a high value, low hanging fruit sort of activity, but yet organizations just want to be done with it and they want to move on. It's just, it's just sort of a strange organizational dynamic that that's very common. So you've got to overcome that by defining where the areas of business value are and quantifying the business value and saying, Hey, look, we could get X amount of, you know, dollars or euros extra uh, in business value and ROI if we just did these 10 things or whatever it is. So there's there's ways to quantify that. And that'll usually get the attention of your management team and your board. Um, and again, especially given that you've invested all this time and money, going that little extra bit, that last mile to optimize, it has a huge amount of value. And you just have to really sell that concept to your organization because there's probably, there's probably going to be headwinds working against you uh, in that case. Yeah, especially in this scenario where you a lot of companies went through that forced transformation during COVID and it was really messy. So now trying to overcome yeah. that perception of we still have opportunity around it where everyone's like, no, thank you. Um, I'm all, all set there. Um, so it's, you know, yeah. really about quantifying it with that data. So but good for you for implementing an ERP system. <laughs> Yeah, and and during the COVID period too, I'm I'm still fascinated and I'm surprised at how many organizations 
successfully went live. I mean, right. they, they weren't pretty by any means and they were, yeah. they were more challenging than normal times, but it's fascinating to me that so many organizations did actually go through an implementation or, an, or a transformation. Granted, they left a lot of value on the table and there's a lot of things they didn't do well because partially because of COVID and the limitations around it. But it's, it's fascinating to me that organizations still found a way to go live. So I think, again, just going that extra mile will deliver so much more value. Yeah, absolutely. Let's do one more here. Um, this is on your digital transformation work streams or your project work streams video. So what are EAs or enterprise architects um, not doing right? I have my own opinion, but what is your expert opinion? Well, I guess I part of me wants to know what you mean by what what are what aren't they doing right or what what sort of um, results are you seeing that's lacking in in this person's context? But I'll just tell you from my perspective what I see. I mean, I think a lot of times enterprise architects are like a lot like consultants. Uh, uh, most of the consultants in the in the technology industry in that they've drunk the Kool Aid for one specific software vendor and they are all about one specific vendor or one specific, uh, they become sort of purist about, you know, kind of right and wrong in terms of architecture and how things should be built. Um, they have their preferred programming languages or integration tools and their own biases because we're all human and we all have biases. And in many cases, enterprise architects have been, you know, they sort of grew up in one tiny part of the overall ecosystem. And that one tiny part is all they know. And so they end up trying to force square pegs into round holes a lot of times and not being knowledgeable of or open to other types of technology. So I think that that lack of independence, that lack of unbiased inputs into the process is one of the biggest challenges and blind spots of uh, enterprise architects and, you know, other professionals, IT professionals is not just architectures that suffer from this, but I, I do think that it is a broad generalization. Enterprise architects are more likely to get kind of hung up or caught up in one specific type of software that they prefer or one specific programming language or integration tool or whatever. Um, so that, that, that sort of bias, I think is one is probably the biggest challenge that enterprise architects have in general. Yeah. And I'd be curious to hear from the audience too. Um, I know we have a lot in our network that work with enterprise architects. So what are some weak points that you've seen in that role and, and what are some opportunities? If you drop those in the comments, we'd love to kind of see your feedback as well. Yeah. Yeah. For the, the questions here that are that are rolling in, we definitely will pull those um, for uh, next week's episode. So make sure you are subscribing and you get notified when we do drop um, next Wednesday. So thank you for all that great engagement. Um, I know we have some hot topics to get to here in a minute, Eric. Yeah. And so yeah, I'd love to hear what, what questions you have. And if you if you have a question you want us to cover on the show, just drop it in the chat right here and we'll, we'll get to it uh, for sure. And uh, Kyler and team will flag those for future uh, episodes. Um, so thank you for the great questions for those of you that did submit the ones we, we covered here today. And uh, we'll shift gears here in a moment and get into some of our hot topics, which are a couple couple case studies. Uh, one is a digital transformation case study uh, for the country of Malta in Europe. Uh, and then the other is the business transformation of NASA, which is the U.S. government's uh, space research uh, lab, if you will. So we'll talk about that business transformation. And then later in the show, after we get to those two hot topics after break, later in the show, we'll have our tech titans digital transformation game show featuring a few different team members from the third stage consulting team uh, doing a fun filled uh, game show format to, to learn about digital transformation. And then finally, last but not least, we'll play you a, a preview of my new book that's coming out on August 25th. That book is called The Final Countdown. It'll be available on Amazon, uh, Kindle and other other formats. Um, so 
stick around for that. And by the way, if you want to learn more about it or get on a pre-registration list for the release, if you just go to third or not third stage consulting, you could go to thirdstageconsulting.com if you want. That's our company name. But uh, the, the book name is The Final Countdown. And uh, the website is called thefinalcountdown.com. So go to thefinalcountdown.com. You can register and get notified when the pre-sale uh, happens in August. And then the, the official release date is August 25th. Um, so anyway, we'll do a little preview later in the show uh, of that book. So be sure to stick around. Uh, we'll get to those hot topics here, though, right after a break. But first, we're going to take that break. We'll be right back with more Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 128. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Cheatham. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday on LinkedIn, YouTube, Facebook, and Twitter, as well as audio podcast platforms throughout the world. So uh, Kyler, you've got a couple of really interesting case studies and hot topics for us here today. What have you got in store for us? Yeah, well, I want to talk about Malta. Um, I wasn't aware of the extreme uh, digital transformation they're going through, not only as a country, as a culture, but it's actually funded by the EU. So just kind of set the background here. Um, the EU decided to pull up its stocks and put its money kind of where its mouth is when talking about moving microchip electronic production to uh, domestic European uh, smart factories. So they actually spent 8 billion um, state aid euros um, that's been approved to entice chip making in building facilities for the EU and the US to counter China's production, kind of their ownership of that marketplace. So the, the STM Microelectronics is actually the largest European-based chip maker and it's in Malta. So they'll receive well over 20 million euros to upgrade its production lines. And really what they're looking to do really is be the pinnacle of smart factories and industry point. 4.0 standards. Um, so I know you've talked a lot about that with different guests on the show here. Um, you can even search wherever you're getting this podcast, Industry 4.0, because we do have a, a an episode on that. But Malta's government government has really kind of embraced this new upgrade in producing cutting edge technology, uh, and they've been doing manufacturing, research and develop development, and all of those types of different things. So just some data behind what this really looks like. Um, according to the European Commission, around 8,700 direct jobs are expected to be created um, and no less than 56 companies, including small businesses and startups, and 68 projects are expected to benefit from this investment. Um, so the prime minister of Malta has really, like I mentioned, engaged in this overall upskilling or reskilling of their overall workforce. 
kind of closing those skills gaps and looking to tomorrow's economy. And when he was interviewed, he said something that really resonated with me that's actually the end of this case study slash article that we're looking in. And that's really what I want to focus on with you today and ask you about. So he said, while digital transformation is crucial if Mon Malta and Europe, Europe are to remain competitive, it's equally important that no one is left behind. Therefore, the need to retrain our workforce as people's well-being must remain the top priority. So to me, that was kind of interesting because you're talking about all of these new kind of technical manufacturing types of changes. But here, this leader of the overall change in the country is talking about the well-being of the people. Uh, so wanted to get kind of your take on that overall transformation. Yeah, well, it's it's um, it's it's interesting, really interesting to hear them say that, that that's the, the focus. And I think it's a good reminder of a couple of things. One is the importance of having um, a clear vision and purpose for your project. A lot of organizations that go through digital transformation or any sort of business transformation, they don't they don't have a like a clear vision and clear purpose of why they're doing this, especially now with with forced upgrades and forced sunsets of legacy products. And, you know, there's a lot of superficial reasons why organizations are going through digital transformations. And a lot of times it's just out of necessity. They just have to. And that's OK, but you need to have that's not enough. It's OK, but it's not enough. Um, which maybe so maybe it's not okay, <laughs> but uh, but it's it really it's it's really focusing on what is the bigger picture purpose of why you're going about the project and how does this project help you achieve that bigger picture? Um, and I think the second thing is not only should every organization have a greater purpose, you know, whatever that purpose is to you as an organization, but it's also interesting to hear that it phrased in that way that that comment or that quote because it's a good reminder too that technology when deployed appropriately can have a lot of really positive impact to society as well as to individual organizations in terms of, you know, career growth opportunities and, um, you know, reskilling and just learning. And then also, you know, the net impact or the net, the net benefit of those technologies to society in general outside the organization. So a lot of times we get scared, we as humans get scared of technology and all the uncertainty that comes with it. But at the end of the day, you know, history has shown that technology generally is going to create more opportunities and, and create arguably more, more benefit than harm. Absolutely. Well, definitely an interesting overview. If any of you um, here joining us live have any feedback on or know anything more about kind of this digital transformation, cultural transformation really going on in Malta with the EU funding, um, definitely pop pop your feedback in, in the comments here, but we'll keep an eye on it because it's always interesting to see a new marketplace emerge, right? And all of the infrastructure that has to go behind that when you want to kind of digitize, but great to see leaders really focused on the people. Yeah. So the next hot topic I want to go to Eric here is, is about NASA. Um, and this always fits well. I love when we find kind of space themed content to kind of cover on the show, since that is a big, huge part of our branding. Uh, but there, this article is really interesting because it talks about it's behind the business of NASA's digital transformation. Uh, so and it's actually an interview with their head of digital transformation, uh, Jill Marlowe. So it's uh, she has a really interesting take. I have to say, when I was reading like this content, it was almost like reading your book. So I feel like that connection there and the approach is is very similar. So there's two pieces that I really want to dig into with you regarding uh, this article. So she got asked basically, what does the digital transformation look like and how has it evolved? 
Um, and she mentioned that in 2018, there was a study team that she refers to, refers to as uh, the pre-formulation phase. So similar to what we do for our phase zero um, as well. And if you want to look at what we do for phase zero, you can actually download our phase zero checklist for free. So just a little shameless plug there. Um, but basically what they saw is technology is part of NASA's DNA. There's no part of the brand that really needs to be incredibly digitized. It's part of who they are. The problem was that there wasn't that big bucket budget allowing people to take kind of this past experimentation with systems and there was so much duplication. Uh, so they took a very technology centric approach to digital transformation and making sure that the interoperability was really the thesis and objective of their project. So I thought I would ask you, when you do have a very technical savvy or technically mature organization, is a digital, a digital transformation, can that be harder or easier? And is this approach of kind of duplication something that you typically see with those high proficient technical organizations? Yeah, it's a good question. Interesting case study too, or an interesting philosophy on a uh, business transformation uh, at an organization like NASA. But one thing we found it, you know, we call it the higher skilled organizations and the higher educated organizations is, you, you know, when I started my career early in the, my consulting years, back when I was a, a young kid, I, I used to think that, you know, the more advanced, the more uh, skilled, the more educated an organization, the easier change would be for them. And I think it, in theory, you know, it sounds reasonable. It's still, when I, as I say it out loud, but what I've, what I found and what our team has found through experience is that a lot of times when you have really highly educated um, organizations, you know, if you think of like an engineering based workforce or a higher, um, higher education uh, organization, like a college or university um, or any sort of learning organization, um, those are a few rocket examples. Rocket scientists, of, if you will. <laughs> yeah, rocket, exactly. Rocket scientists that people at NASA a lot of times it's the high, the highly educated ones oftentimes are, are very difficult to change. And I would actually apply this to myself too. I think, I think I'm pretty well educated, but I struggle with change and I probably do more and differently than other, you know, a lot of other people. And I think the reason for that is, you know, I don't have a doctorate or anything like that. I do have a master's degree. So I, you know, I'm fairly, fairly well educated. And, but I just think that education and experience and depth in one area creates, in some cases can create blind spots when it comes to change. Um, you know, because you're smart, you're confident in your knowledge, and you're you're more likely to maybe challenge changes and question why we're doing things, and is this really the best thing for us? And, and it, may, it could be that you're you're wrong. You know, it could be that you're challenging things that are the best thing for us or whatever. Um, that's not really the point. The point is that there's just a, a sort of a mentality and organizational dynamic that often comes with those highly educated organizations and workforces where they actually resist change more, and change management becomes even more important for them. And you have to be a little bit more creative with your change management um, because people will see through it. If you're just doing the kumbaya, rah, rah, go team approach to change management, to try and convince everyone to change, that's not going to work with highly educated workforces. You have to be more deliberate and sort of speak their language and show them what's in it for them even more so than you would any other organization. Yeah, that's definitely getting that buy-in. Um, and that's actually a kind of a perfect lead into my next question is because in this interview, she asked, she got asked, how do you get everybody coordinated? And they get those conversations going in such a large, complex organization. And she, um, she gave this approach that I'm so interested to hear your feedback on. And it's tone at the top, 
mood in the middle, buzz at the bottom. So a concentrated effort of thinking about various layers of the organization to encourage collaboration and interoperability. So I had to get your feedback on, on that piece of it. That's very cool. I like it. So tone at the top, buzz at the bottom. What was the middle one? Mood in the middle. So mood in the middle. Mood in the middle. Um, and then buzz at the bottom. Yeah. Tone, mood, and buzz. I like it. That sort of fits the hierarchy, mm -hmm. if you will, of an organization as well as how change has to be driven down down, down the organization. It's, and it does start with the top setting that tone. So I like that. And then mid-level management has to create the mood and then you know, the, ultimately the buzz, you want to create that buzz at the end of the day, you know, at the, at the bottom. So I think it's a really, that's a really cool um, way to look at it. I'd never heard that. Well, this article is incredible. Um, it's a next give article and I'll link it below. Um, but I could talk about it for hours. I even like went on LinkedIn and like creepily emailed her and was like, this was amazing, you know? Um, so I'm obviously a huge fan, um, but it's just, it's, it's very, very focused on the methodology, but the balance of the people part of understanding what the strategic goals are. And I also like that it's a journey. You know, it's not just how you go throughout one implementation. It's about the integrations and, and the different pieces of leveraging the technology to really maximize business value with that tone at the top approach. So I um, highly recommend it. And thank you for kind of unpacking it with us today. Yeah, absolutely. Thank you for sharing those. Those are both really interesting case studies and uh, uh, a lot we can learn from. And, and I love these examples of real life in progress sorts of case studies and in fact, we'll have another one for you later in the show. Um, the last segment today will be uh, Kyler and I uh, talking about a specific case study that we use in my new book uh, that's coming on August 25th. It's called The Final Countdown. Um, what's the subtitle again? Digital Strategies to Realize the Third Stage of Digital Transformation Success, I think is the- Three pillars of digital three transformation. Three pillars. <laughs> yeah, something like that. But you know, the catchy the hook book. is the final yeah. countdown. I think so too, regardless of the subtitle. But uh, so if you check out thefinalcountdown.com, you can learn more about it. In the meantime, you can also just register to receive uh, notice when we do the pre-sale in August and then the official release date is August 25th. So we'll have that uh, case study, another case study later in the show. But before we get to that case study, we are going to have a few different uh, guests on the show from the third stage consulting team doing a Tech Titans game show, a digital transformation game show. Um, that Kyler is going to host for us and sort of walk us through. And um, I guess we're going to compete with one another. We'll find out here in a minute. I'm not sure what to expect. We, we tried something similar to this a while back, a few months ago. Um, so we'll try it again. Uh, different questions, slightly different format, but, but uh, we'll make it fun and engaging and, and get the audience involved too. So stick around for that. We're going to have uh, those guests on the show for the digital transformation game show called Tech Titans. Stick around. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be right back with more digital well, it's not digital. It is digital transformation, but the show is called Transformation Ground Control. We'll be right back with more. If you are involved in any sort of digital transformation or business change initiative, you will want to download the 2021 Digital Transformation Report. With its comprehensive overview of business and technology trends and best practices, this report is a must-have guide for any transformation project or executive team. Download this free report by visiting Third Stage Consulting at thirdstage-consulting.com. You can also visit our website to learn more about us or download independent reports, videos, and other best practices. Again, visit thirdstage-consulting.com today to learn how to take your transformation to the third stage of success. 
Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control. This is the podcast that has everything to do with digital transformation, including the people process, technology and strategy, aspects of change. We uh, have new episodes every Wednesday on LinkedIn, Facebook, YouTube, and Twitter, as well as audio podcast platforms throughout the world. So be sure to check us out wherever you listen or watch. And I'm excited for our next segment that Kyler is actually going to walk us through and host. It's a game show, a digital transformation game show called Tech Titans. We're testing it out. We've done a similar format sort of in the past, but this is a, a newer format. We're going to test it out, see how it goes. We may turn it into a series, uh, depending on how, how it's received and how it goes uh, here today. Um, so I'm excited for this. We're going to have a, a couple other guests here uh, from the third stage consulting team, as well as myself uh, competing here. And Kyler is going to lead us through the process. So I'll turn it over to you, Kyler. Thanks, Eric. Well, let's get into it. Greg Benton, our um, chief strategy officer. Well, you just said it, Kyler. I know. Greg I Benton, your chief son. strategy officer that. for third stage. And uh, I, too, am located here in Denver in the USA. And it's an incredible day today here in Denver. So glad to be with you. Excellent. And Ryan, your premiere debut as part of the third stage team on our live stream. So if you want to, um, you can go ahead and let us know who you are and what you're about. Yeah, my name is Ryan Glisson. I am the global marketing manager and Kyler, Kyler and I um, work together to um, help get out the message and the brand of third stage through marketing. Excellent. And Jordy? Hi, my name is Jordy McDougall. I'm a consultant at Third Stage Consulting. Um, I'm based out of Denver, Colorado, but right now I'm based out of my car. I'm actually traveling from, uh, I'm, I'm in somewhere in Nebraska right now. So uh, nice to be on. Excellent. And yeah, Jordy is back-to-back -back episodes. So he's slowly becoming the Eric Kimberling Jr., as I like <laughs> to call him. Of, uh, of ground control here. So let's start with some fun questions. Um, as many of our audience knows, um, we have a classic rock theme here um, from Boston and Third Stage, their album. So I'm going to do a little this or that when it comes to classic rock. So I can see all of your comments no matter where you're joining from today. So if you have an opinion or a question, you can go ahead and pop them in the comments here. Um, so to start, we'll go to Eric, this or that, the Beatles or the Rolling Stones? Ooh, last time you did this, it was the Beatles or Elvis. And now this is yeah. a little bit tougher for me. I know. Um, I got to, you know, make it not as a slam dunk as it was the last time. So. That is really difficult for me. Uh, I'm going to do it and it depends. Uh, it depends. If you're <laughs> On the looking first for... question, you're going to do an it depends. <laughs> okay, all right. Depends on if you like flawless songwriting and production and influence on rock and roll overall, I'd say the Beatles. If you just like the loose garage rock fun feel of the Rolling Stones, then the Rolling Stones. Personally, I'd probably go Rolling Stones. That's I, If I had to choose who I'm going to listen to, it's, it's going to be Rolling Stones over the Beatles. But uh, I feel... I feel like that's blasphemy in some ways, especially for maybe some of our UK audience. They may not appreciate me. Well, actually, yeah. they're both from the UK, so it doesn't matter, I guess. Um, Rolling Stones and, and uh, the Beatles. But I, yeah, I'd say a slight edge to the Rolling Stones for that reason. Excellent. Well, very good. Well, Ryan, our residential rock star, um, your turn next. So this or that, Led Zeppelin or Pink Floyd? That's a super easy one for me. Led Zeppelin all day long, every day. I, you know... Didn't necessarily grow up on classic rock, um, and it's not something I listen to super, super frequently, but I will to this day still say that 
Led Zeppelin's the best band ever. Like they wow. had like a three or four album stretch that was just like 10 out of 10 from start to finish. And, you know, you listen to, um, you know, back in the seventies, their late sixties, seventies, early eighties, there, there wasn't auto tune and there wasn't the, mm-hmm. um, digital editing in like the recording process like there is today. And they sound as good as anyone ever. And so I, that's just like super impressive to me on top mm-hmm. of just great songs. So yeah, I, that's an easy one for me personally. All right. Led Zeppelin it is. So, all right, Greg, Queen or ACDC? Wow. That's, that's even a tough one. Um, Queen was just iconic, uh, especially after the movie came out. I, I, I have to say, I appreciate Queen mm-hmm. much more than I, I did before. Um, but ACDC, I've been to a few concerts with ACDC, and they're just incredible. Their stage presence is off the charts, right? So um, I'm not going to play Eric's It Depends card. <laughs> I am I am going to go with Queen as, Queen. as my favorite all time out of those two. Wow, good. All right, Jordy, I feel bad like even asking you these because I don't even know if you were like alive <laughs> during this era. But, um, wow, but- tough crowd. Aerosmith or Guns N' Roses? I would have to go with Guns N' Roses, but I'll throw in uh, a little shout out to Aerosmith. Actually, they have a a ride, whether it's at Disneyland or Disney World, was probably the best ride that I rode at that amusement park. So that makes me want to say Aerosmith just because of the experience of being at Disney World, I think it was in Florida. But uh, Guns N' Roses, I mean, yeah. That they just have so many hits that you hear, whether you go to a sporting event or you know any sort of outing, you're gonna hear many, many Guns N' Roses songs. So that'll be my pick. Good. Welcome, well, to, the, welcome to the jungle. Yeah. There yeah. You go. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> well, definitely, and we'd love to hear from the audience too, um, kind of what your favorite classic rock band um, and where you're joining from us from today. Um, but let's get into more of the digital transformation. Um, so the goal of these lighthearted conversations are kind of to showcase different approaches and to understand kind of the positive and negatives behind them. So I'm going to do a couple would you rather questions. As I mentioned in our instructions, you guys are allowed to pass. I'm sure we will hear it depends even if I put some governance around, you're not allowed to say that. But um, Greg, I'm actually going to start with with you. Um, I mean, your experience in the industry is truly invaluable to our audience. So I think you can kind of kick us off, if you will. So would you rather invest in your company's existing legacy system or implement a completely new digital infrastructure? Well, I, uh, I'm not going to play the depends card, but um, I, I think it really is a matter of doing the upfront homework, uh, understanding exactly what the objectives are of the organization and preparing for making that decision about which direction you're going to go. In some cases, from a budgetary standpoint, from a, uh, a business continuity standpoint, making the best of your legacy systems may be the right choice for your organization. On the other hand, moving to a new cloud technology, moving to a, a single unified system for reporting, for analytics, for everything else that you need to do over the next five to 10 years, Mm-hmm. Um, is often the best choice. So I think it depends on budget. It depends on your objectives as an organization. 
And it depends on your willingness to embark on this kind of a journey and, and really involve the whole organization in moving forward. Absolutely, definitely. Um, an important alignment is really the key yeah. piece of that, as you mentioned. Um, so definitely five points to Greg. I'm just going to give points five. out. Like, yeah, wow. five points to Greg. Although, as you notice, he said it depends three times. And that I know. <laughs> you know, you, you can't. You got to meet people where they are. It's called, you know, compromise. At least he doesn't, like, blatantly cheat like you do. Eric can just That's say, true. I'm going to say it. <laughs> That's true. He at least took a stab at answering. I know. Right. Right. Um, all right. Well, let's go to you, Jordy. This is kind of along the same lines. Would you rather prioritize investing in a cutting edge emerging technology such as AI, predictive analytics, machine learning, or focus on optimizing your current technology stack? And I can't say it depends. Okay. All right. Um... <laughs> we always know it depends, but you know, you maybe can give us the pros and cons of both. Right. Well, I would, I would say that it, you would have to to really figure out what you want in the future and what you're trying to work towards, whether it is um, really extreme growth and, and trying to scale very fast, or if you're, you're kind of just trying to stay where you're at and just um, maybe continue um, being in your place in, in the marketplace. So depends, I would say half and half, if that's, a, if that's an answer, I would say that AI is um, somewhat or another going to make its way into almost everything uh, out there, but you'll still have to, you know, work on your people and really lean on your people as as humans and, and teammates and individuals, while also working with your current technology and trying to leverage that as high as as you possibly can. So a little bit of both, and maybe mm -hmm. it might take some trial and error and seeing, you know, if you go a bunch of AI, maybe you want to roll back a little bit and, and, um, and you know, vice versa. So if that's a fair answer. Let's, I'll accept it. I'll, okay. I'll accept it. Yeah, but no, no, great answer. Because really, it does depend on the overall, overall infrastructure and proficiencies of the organization. Emerging right. technologies can be really sparkly and sound really cool. But if you don't have the operational um, proficiencies to make sure that you're leveraging their abilities and their capabilities, then it's, it's a, you know, it's a bad investment. So it definitely mm -hmm. makes sense. We're here with the third stage consulting team playing the digital transformation game show called Tech Titans. We've got a lot more to get into, a lot more competition, so be sure to stick around. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. When I wake up, well, I know I'm going to be, I'm going to be the man who wakes up next to you. When I go out. Hi, this is Eric Kimberling with Third Stage Consulting and your host of Transformation Ground Control. I want to encourage you to read our Guide to Organizational Change Management. It's a free report or a free guide that we published. It's one that I actually wrote that talks about best practices and lessons learned as it relates to change management. So as you know, on this podcast, we cover a lot of stuff related to the human sides of change, organizational change management, including training, communications, org design, all kinds of stuff as it relates to change management. So if you're trying to learn more about change management or you're looking for more direction and ideas on how to get started on your change management strategy and your overall journey, be sure to check out this guide. You can read it by scanning the QR code on the screen in front of you or in the links below for this particular podcast episode, you can find a link to uh, take you to the page that'll allow you to register to go ahead and download that and read it for free. So be sure to check it out. It's the guide to organizational change management uh, written by yours truly. I hope you enjoy it. Let me know what you think and hope you enjoy the rest of this episode.
Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 128. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday on YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter, as well as audio podcast plat- platforms throughout the world. So thank you for joining here today. We are in the middle of our Tech Titans Digital Transformation game show. So I'll turn it back to you, Kyler. To Ryan, would you rather train your existing employees to develop digital skills or hire new specialized digital experience um, for your specific system or project? Well, I'm just going to go based off my personal experience of trying to learn everything and then therefore watering things down. Um, so in my experiences, at least with, with doing marketing things, um, it's been a quicker avenue to success to bring in people that like are experts at one mm-hmm. thing than try to get I consider myself somewhat of like a generalist with, with things. So like I'm pretty decent at a lot of things, but I don't know that I'm an expert at any one. Um, and I feel like, you know, being a generalist is great to get you maybe from zero to 60 to 80%, but to really like fully maximize and, and scale something like you do kind of need the efficiencies of someone that's an expert to get you that last maybe 20 to 25%. Mm-hmm. So I guess to Jordy's point, I'm saying like, it's not really, a, it depends or 50, 50, but it's like, I feel like optimizing what you have can get you pretty far, but it's not going to get you all the way. So I guess it, dang it. I almost said it depends. Um, depending on, <laughs> depending on um, say it depends in a different order. That's a great, good job. This would make a great drinking game. <laughs> if your company is, is starting out, I would say maybe you can optimize the people that you have maybe for budgetary reasons, but if you're at a pretty efficient and and bigger company, like maybe it takes bringing in some of those people that have like the skills that just are kind of beyond what your team is going to be able to realistically learn. If that makes any sense. Yeah, absolutely. I think that that, you know, again, it it depends. I'm the only one that's allowed to say it depends. So everyone's great. (laughs) Um, yeah, certainly of, you know, what are the competencies in-house, but also investing in that upskilling, especially when it comes to new um, technology and that messaging around what that looks like throughout the transformation. So you're not creating pockets of resistance or fear, um, definitely. So, okay, Eric, you're up. Would you rather implement a comprehensive digital transformation strategy across all departments simultaneously or take a phased approach starting with one department at a time um i would say um say it i know you want me to or you don't want me to but i'm not i'm not going to say those two words um i would say that probably a more incremental phased approach yeah generally speaking is going to be you most most organizations just don't have the risk tolerance or the they don't move fast enough mm-hmm. to justify a big bang kind of a enterprise wide deployment all at once. So I think having it more of a phased approach, phased approach and incrementally, if I had to choose one, even though it doesn't apply to everyone, I'd say that incremental approach is the more common, the more commonly palatable one. Gotcha. Definitely. Um, Well, again, would love to hear from the audience to phased approach versus kind of a holistic approach, we'll say to a digital transformation. That's certainly something that we work with our clients to help them identify their specific goals because it will be unique 
if you will, to each, um, each organization. Um, so this one I'm going to do, oh, I don't know. This is a, this is a controversial one. I'm going to do Greg and then maybe Eric will argue with him. That's where I see this going. If I, if oh, I were to guess, good. um, so would you rather adopt a cloud-based approach for storaging and managing your data or selecting a SaaS system or focus on an on-premise data center solution? Oh, that one's really easy for me. I would say a cloud-based approach. Mm -hmm. There are a couple of things going on with cloud right now um, over the last five years and really arguably over the last decade. All of the software vendors have been moving to a cloud-based platform for at least part of, if not all of their application suites. Mm -hmm. And so if you're going to be relevant and you're going to be improving performance over the next five to 10 years, you're going to want to be on something that's continually upgraded, that's continually optimized through that, that cloud capability. And on-premise, I believe, is, is going to go away at mm -hmm. some point. Um, the computing power, the storage capabilities that are inherent in the cloud, the cloud-to-cloud -cloud connectivity and the interoperability is, um, I just think, overwhelming in, in yeah. terms of uh, staying on premise for, for people. And Eric, I don't know if you might disagree or agree with that. Well, if you, if you force me to disagree or play devil's advocate, <laughs> Um, which it sounds like Kyler might be yeah. forcing me, um, then I would say, well, that all sounds great, Greg. You may be right, but what about the uh, areas of competitive advantage? I, I have a company that has some super unique processes that just can't be handled by a multi-tenant SaaS cloud solution, and I need that flexibility to be able to preserve my secret sauce, and nor do I want that ever to be in the cloud. Or maybe I've got a, uh, you know, I'm a government contractor, and I can't have my data in the cloud. I can't have it hosted in a different country or whatever. So what do you what do you say to situations like that? Does that change your answer? Or do you do you have a way that cloud could maybe address some of those challenges? It it slightly alters my answer because you have to plan from the very beginning how you're going to sequence your move to the cloud. So if you're moving your core ERP system to a cloud-based system and you've got that special sauce that needs to be on premise, or you've got huge data stores that are in an older on-premise custom developed system, you've got to have that interoperate with the cloud-based system that you're moving to. And eventually you may move everything to the cloud. So I think it is a matter of transition and sequencing the consolidation of older applications into a cloud-based digital enterprise operations package, right? That, that entire vision. Absolutely. That vision is, is certainly critical. Um, and turning to our audience, we have some great questions coming in and some great answers. Um, we do have a global audience joining us today. So thank you so much um, for all of your engagement. So building on kind of that phased versus big bang approach, we have a question from the audience. It's um, specifically for Eric. Eric, don't you think the implementation strategy, big bang or not, depends on the risks the business are facing in its market, new entrants, so on? Um, so talk a little, Eric, if you don't mind talking a little bit about uh, just the overall considerations when it comes to a holistic versus phase approach. Yeah, first of all, um, when that question came up, I couldn't help 
uh, but notice Italo's name. I, that's a cool name. Italo, it Italo cool. Flamio. That's a very cool name. So I'm curious to know what where you're from, Italo, Italo, and where what the origin of that name is because it's a it's a very cool name. Um, anyway, that was not at all your question, but the question is about implementation strategy. Um, I I think it it does depend on the risk. I think a lot of times, you know, I I mentioned risk tolerance and how mm -hmm. if an organization has a low tolerance for risk, they might be more inclined to go with a phased. Uh, approach or an incremental approach to their transformation. But it could also be that it's a, it's a lowest point. It could be that you're risk tolerant, but you need to be more, or you're, you're, you're not, you don't have a high tolerance for risk, but maybe you should because the market's changing so fast mm -hmm. and the world around you is changing so fast and you're not keeping up as an organization. So that's a great counterpoint to what I had said earlier, which is you might have a low tolerance for risk, but you might need to focus your cultural transformation on accepting more risk and be more aggressive in change and that sort of thing. So um, that, that'd be a sort of a good uh, counterpoint I'd say to that, to, to address Italo's point, but it's a great, it's a great point And I agree with him. Yeah. And Italo's from Brazil. So thank you for joining us um, today. And then um, Thurman on LinkedIn also said, Eric is right. Most customers can't handle the big bang, which you had mentioned the phase approach might be a better option for organizations that aren't prepared to really, undertake um, a full transformation but to greg's point making sure that the business is still aligned with the overall objectives um so definitely some great uh feedback and conversations happening in the comments so thank you for that engagement we're here with a third stage consulting team playing the digital transformation game show called tech titans we've got a lot more to get into a lot more competition so be sure to stick around we're going to take a quick break we'll be back with more transformation ground control Interested in working for a company that truly values your unique skills and experience? Here at Third Stage, we don't hire based on resumes alone. We look at the full candidate, experience, and willingness to provide excellent service for our clients. Within a technology independent and agnostic consulting firm, you have the opportunity to learn across industries with a diverse group of clients. Our consultants also have the opportunity to diversify their portfolio and learn across technology systems. If you're interested in joining a high growth entrepreneurial organization, please reach out to us at work at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 128. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday on YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter, as well as audio podcast pl platforms throughout the world. So thank you for joining here today. We are in the middle of our Tech Titans Digital Transformation game show. So I'll turn it back to you, Kyler. I'm um, kind of back to uh, would you rather question. I'm going to go to Jordy on this one. Would you rather prioritize cybersecurity measures, which are important for those SaaS-based um, environments, um, to protect your digital assets or invent, invest in enhancing data analytic capabilities internally? I guess depending on, on where you're at right now in your yeah. business and, and what you're looking to go for, it's the same kind of thing. What, what your goal is for the future. Um, I would say that the cyber security would be would be a big thing to to polish up before you're trying to move forward and and start to advance forward. So I would almost it's almost like one of those get your your ducks all in a row before you start you know moving forward. So I would focus on the security aspect of things and then move forward into um, enhancing as a whole. 
Absolutely. And, and cybersecurity has really gone from kind of a nice to have, like it's probably going to be okay to a to a, a full full fledged work stream. Is that kind of correct? Yeah, definitely. I, I agree with that wholeheartedly. Excellent. All right, Ryan, you ready? Let's do it. Okay. We are going to go back to our this or that format. So you have two choices and I will ask you kind of what, which one you choose and why. So um, in-house development versus outsourcing. So when it comes to digital tr transformation, excuse me, would you prefer to develop new technologies or solutions in-house or outsource to external vendors? Hmm. I mean, I feel like this kind of falls in line with uh, the question a little bit that I had earlier. Um, you can say it depends if you if you need to. <laughs> I, I can't like hold you to it. And, and you said it. This was was the software in house. So technical skills in house. Um, so that can be maintenance in house. That can be outsourcing IT sources. Um, that can be um, consultants to kind of help with your transformation, a variety of different things. Gotcha. Okay, then, yeah, it pretty closely, I feel like, falls in line for me with what my previous response was. Like, if you have the budget and the time to be able to hire out for those things and have, um, or I should say, if you have the budget and time to develop in-house, then that's great. And if you have the resources to be able to, you know, hire the team members to manage all that, then, then that's great. But that can be a slow turnaround. Uh, it can be costly. It can require a lot of um, man hours or employee hours to mm -hmm. kind of facilitate all those things. So if you're a bigger company and, and you need some customization and you need things really like honed in for each part of, of the business or, or the campaigns or strategies you're trying to do, like that could be great. Um, if you need to be a little bit more nimble and you have, you, you maybe you don't have the resources to, to do some of those things, then hiring out at least like, and again, I'm speaking as someone that's mostly done marketing. So I'm mm -hmm. thinking from a marketing perspective here, but like um, hiring out those, those people that can help with some efficiencies and, and maybe like um, don't cost as much as hiring a full, full team to, to manage something. That's, that's how I see it from like, how I've seen things um, work in companies in, in the marketing. Um, you know, if, if I might add mm -hmm. just a, a comment to that, I, I completely agree with you, Ryan. Um, but I think that what we're seeing a lot of right now is kind of a hybrid approach. Mm -hmm. And you want the people that have been working in the organization that know your organization from both a business and an IT standpoint working on the project, right? And you also want the best people who are certified in any given technology to be working on your implementation, for example. So putting those two side by side in a core project team is a way of transferring that knowledge internally, but also making sure that you keep your resident knowledge, your you know, tribal knowledge of the organization intact as you go forward. And then when you're done with the implementation, the ongoing optimization, is performed by your internal people. Mm -hmm. And that really just is a good grounds or foundation for change in the organization as well. Getting everybody 
organized together and moving forward in the same direction. Yeah, and that organizational design piece of it is so important to understand what that hybrid looks like, who should be in what seats, um, what partners should be involved in that. Um, so a lot of things like we do for third stage is help our clients actually develop that competency, of whether it's in-house or, or externally, because of our independent and technology agnostic stance. Our only goal is for business um, and making sure our clients achieve those business objectives. Uh, so that's always nice to have that experience uh, to kind of craft that because it can be hard. It can be very complex to make sure you have all the right people in the right places. All right. We're going to go to you for this one, Eric. It's the, the time's old, this or that, agile or waterfall? <laughs> uh, if I had to pick one, I'd go waterfall, uh, especially for larger, complex, multinational organizations that are trying to standardize operations, act like one company, and drive efficiency gains, which a lot of our clients are. I know it's not cool. Um, the cool answer is to say definitely Agile. Agile is the, the thing. That's the way to go. But um, I've just seen too many dark sides of Agile and too much chaos that it creates. Um, however, having said that, there's ways that you can sort of do that hybrid approach where you can have a waterfall stage gate based approach, but within that framework in that structure, you can have sort of agile-esque sorts of ways of deploying once you get to it. So for example, you could have a waterfall based approach to define all your requirements and sort of your future state business processes and organization up front, and then take more of an agile approach once you get past that initial stage gate to then go deploy technology and test it, react, change, pivot, all that stuff. So I think you could do agile, but doing so in the context of a broader overarching waterfall uh, approach is probably the way I would say you could get the best of both worlds. But if I had to pick one or the other, and it's one extreme or the other, which is not necessarily the real choice that most organizations face. But if I had to choose, I'd say waterfall, because uh, I think there's even though there is a downside to waterfall, I think the upside potential is greater with waterfall, especially for larger multinationals that are trying to standardize and drive efficiency gains and all that good stuff. Interesting. I'm definitely interested to hear from the audience. This usually sparks a lot of conversation on the, the different approaches because you have some purists in both camps um, yeah. as well. But it sounds like sometimes waterfall is more the the structure and um, agile can be more of a mindset. You know, have, being the ability to be flexible and pivot is something that's definitely critical when it comes to a digital transformation project. Yeah. And, and you have to be careful, too, that you're not using agile as an excuse not to have structure in your project because a lot of times i think that's what teams do they say well let's not worry about planning let's not worry about a ton of business requirements up front let's just go start building stuff and deploying stuff and the vendors sort of pile onto that mindset too because they mm -hmm. want you to just get going they want you to start deploying stuff right away um so they're gonna you know i think that's why the vendors lean so heavily into agiles because it, it supports their agenda which is to sell more software get it deployed as quickly as possible um, but as an organization, sometimes you need to pump the brakes and say, well, yeah, I want to deploy quickly and aggressively, but I also want to be deliberate about what mm -hmm. I'm doing. I want to be structured. I want to be methodical. I want to get value out of this. I don't want to just go throw technology at the problem and assume that agile approach is going to fix it. So, um, so yeah, I'd say, you know, the more structured you're looking, the more you're trying to be structured, the more controls you're trying to put in place, the more standardization and efficiency gains you're trying to do, the more you would probably lean towards um, waterfall. If you're a tech startup, you're really nimble, you have a high uh, tolerance for risk and 
you know, you just move fast as an organization that maybe leaning more towards agile does make sense in those cases. But what we find with most organizations out there, they're not tech companies, they're not startups, they're not, you know, they're not necessarily in that position. Yeah. And we even have a question from the audience specifically about a public sector environment. So what about a government agency? And it sounds like that's definitely a high standardized environment, correct? Yeah, I'd say government agencies, you would be more inclined probably to lean towards waterfall, partially because you, you have to. I mean, there's certain regulatory mm -hmm. things you just have to do and that you're set out to do, you're chartered to do as an organization. So you don't have a lot of as much flexibility as a for-profit organization that can do, you know, for all practical purposes, they can do whatever they want. Government mm -hmm. agencies can do whatever they want. The other thing too is government agencies are more likely to have highly tenured employees that are more likely to resist change. And when you have tenured employees that are more likely to resist change, um, agile does not help. It actually makes mm -hmm. it worse because then you just end up paving the cow paths. You end up getting, taking all that feedback that you get from the people that are resisting change and you tweak the overall project to fit what they want, which oftentimes is just keep it the way things have always been. So you know, for that reason too, you want, and I'm, I'm, these are total stereotypes and generalizations. I totally understand that, acknowledge that, but in general, that's what we see a lot with government and public sector organizations. Excellent. Well, very good. Well, thank you for the question. That's a really good question. Keep those come in here in the comments and we'll keep answering them. So we're here with the third stage consulting team playing the digital transformation game show called tech Titans. We've got a lot more to get into, a lot more competition, so be sure to stick around. We're going to take a quick break. We'll be back with more Transformation Ground Control. Are you looking to stay ahead of the curve in the ever-changing landscape of digital transformation? Then you need our newly released 2023 Digital Transformation Report. This comprehensive report covers the latest trends, technologies, and strategies to ensure your digital transformation is optimized for success. The 2023 Digital Transformation Report is packed full of proven methodologies and insights from experts in the independent digital transformation field. You'll also receive practical insights on how to implement digital transformation strategies within your unique organization. This free report is available for download on our website at thirdstage-consulting.com under our thought leadership section. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 128. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday on YouTube, LinkedIn, Facebook, and Twitter, as well as audio podcast platforms platforms throughout the world. So thank you for joining here today. We are in the middle of our Tech Titans digital transformation game show. So I'll turn it back to you, Kyler. Going to you, Greg, user design or functionality? So in, in the context of a digital transformation, would you prioritize exceptional user experience and design or functional features? Um, exceptional user design. Um, I, I would say that, uh, you know, that's getting to the business process part mm -hmm. of it, really controlling what you're implementing and rolling out rather than just adhering to whatever the technology will, will bring. So adhering to your own best practices, your own business processes, and optimization of those processes rather than just doing a uh, technology implementation for the sake of new technology. 
So um, as Eric was alluding to the, uh, to the CalPAP statement, I think that um, if you don't look at the business process piece of it first, the functionality, the, um, uh, the use of the system that you currently have and the use of the system that you have as your objectives, um, <clears throat> you really get to a point where you're just paving over old cow paths mm -hmm. or you're implementing very expensive new technology to do something that you really should be able to, as an organization, figure out how to optimize the way that you do business globally. So, um, Eric, I don't know if you might have a, another thought on that as we go back and forth on this. No, actually, I agree with you on that. I think that makes, makes a lot of sense. Unless Kyler forces me to debate you, then I, then I know, <laughs> right. I, I like the drama, you know, no, um, I didn't think you were going to say that. That's always why I love these because I, I thought you were going to say the opposite. Um, then user design is a functionality is more important. So I'm surprised to hear that answer. Um, so definitely I learned something as well today. I think in general, you know, software vendors have underinvested in user mm -hmm. interface. You know, they've focused so much on building these behind the scenes, under the cover sorts of functionalities and capabilities, which is great, but it doesn't do you any good if the user can't figure out how to how to get there. So I, I think it'll be interesting to see how AI might change that, especially the, yeah. mm -hmm. the generative and responsive AI tools that are out there. You know, if you could not have to navigate through a bunch of menus and just ask a question to yeah. the system and that's how you get information or that's how you get the insight you're looking for, that's, you know, the ultimate sort of utopia of user experience. But in general, I think a lot of software vendors have really underinvested, and the ones that have invested heavily in user interface, I think they have a leg up because, mm -hmm. you know, first of all, it sells really well. If you've got a great user interface, it's going to be easier to sell those capabilities. Second of all, it's going to be easier to implement and train people uh, on it if, if it's got a better user interface. Oh, yeah. And change management. I mean, change management is much easier mm -hmm. with the, uh, with the optimized user interface, right? Um, yeah. Making it simple to do simple tasks, do your, do your job in a different way, but with new tools. So. Yeah. Agreed. Well, speaking of new tools, my next one is for you, Jordy. So this or that fresh new vendor versus incumbent. It would depend on, I guess, what technology that the, the fresh new vendor is trying. There, there I go again. Sorry. I told you, but, Eric Jr. over here just, yeah. you know. <laughs> he's, he's been trained well. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> I'm just kidding. The, um, the new technology, uh, it, it might be harder to trust. You don't have as many references that you might be able to get in touch with and, and really learn from. But there's always an upside to the new and innovative uh, vendors and, and new and innovation in, in anything I would say. So you would really have to do your homework. I would say maybe a little bit more than the, than the already existing vendor that is currently successful and um, maybe doing a pros and cons type comparison between the two and really seeing, okay, what is the benefit of going with this new technology that I might be the first person ever using it. But if it's, you know, going to change me this much more and make me all of a sudden an industry leader, mm -hmm. then maybe it's worth that risk. And it's, it's going back to the risk and risk management and, and kind of seeing where, where you fit on that spectrum and, and, and what you think would be best for your growth and, and getting towards that future that you're striving towards. And so, and this is to the group, what are the importance of say when you're going through um, a, an evaluation or your system's getting sunsetted? 
of actually structuring an evaluation besides just going with the incumbent within your overall organization. So I'll just throw that out there. Someone can pick it up. I think that with the incumbent, you know, regardless of whether the, the incumbent is the right solution or the best solution for your organization, the good thing with an incumbent is you've built a certain amount of critical mass internally and comfort and knowledge of that technology. And so it's sort of, it forces, it forces a situation where you have to raise the bar. You have to have, have a pretty high threshold to justify ripping out the incumbent and replacing it with something totally different. It mm -hmm. could be that, that, you know, there's something better out there for you, but you have to really assess it against the ROI of that. You know, is it worth the risk, the potential extra cost that it's going to take to now retrain your staff on an entirely new technology? Um, is that worth the potential upside? If you're only going to get like five to 10% incremental value over your incumbent, then it's probably not worth it. But if you've got this incumbent that has some earth shattering capabilities that your incumbent does not offer, it may be worth it. And it gets back to the risk tolerance, your culture, what, mm -hmm. what you are today versus what you want to be in the future. You know, if you're a private equity owned company and you're really, you know, throwing rocket fuel on your growth trajectory, it may make more sense then to go with, you know, kind of a new, a newer technology that's a little bit higher risk, but potential higher ROI. If you're a third generation family owned business that's growing five to 10% a year, that may be too much risk and you may be better off just getting more value out of the incumbent and, you know, it's really, really fine tuning what you've got sort of back to the question you had for Jordy before yeah. about the, um, you know, do you, do you replace your, do you, uh, I forgot what the question was, but choosing new system versus, mm -hmm. uh, investing in the existing system. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I think, I think that really kind of points out why the independence and mm -hmm. really taking a look at what are your options as a business really comes into importance, right? Um, from a budgetary standpoint, many times staying with the incumbent avoids having to pay for both maintenance on the old software and subscription to the new software system that you're implementing. Um, there are big financial considerations in moving to a whole new technology platform, right? Mm -hmm. But there may be huge gains available to you, just as Eric was pointing out. So you really don't want to move with a single software vendor, even though they're an incumbent, without checking out everything that's available to you. So understanding what the you know, the risks and the ROI are for your business as you go forward. Um, yeah. Vitally important. Yeah, absolutely. And, that, and that's a great segue into your question, Greg. You ready for it? Yeah, sure. Core ERP or best of breed? Wow. That is a tough one. Um, uh, and I'm staying away from the, the two words. So... Um, I would actually say best of breed because I don't think best of breed is actually best of breed anymore. Mm -hmm. I think best of breed is the uh, awareness that you've got all of these edge solutions that surround core ERP. Core ERP used to be finance, supply chain, human resources, payroll, those type of functionalities. Um, now it includes things like asset management, uh, supply chain management. Um, warehouse management, uh, interoperability with uh, in healthcare clinical systems, things mm -hmm. like that. All of those make the digital operations picture come into focus. So it's not just core ERP. It's okay. You can call it best of breed, but it's it's really just best of all solutions for your organization. Yeah, 
Absolutely. It's it's interesting that you say that because we did similar to Eric hosted with our team probably about a year ago at this point. Um, and we asked everyone that question and they all said core ERP. And we've asked a few times since then and it's changed. The answer has changed. So how do you feel as though the industry has evolved um, in the last you know year, five years around that? Eric, you want to take that or do you want me to? Uh, I, I could take a stab at it and see what you think. Uh, I, I think the backdrop of that, this debate, you know, you have to look at the uh, economic incentives of everyone involved in the debate, you know, so you, you get, if I work for SAP or Oracle or uh, maybe even Microsoft or, you know, one of the big software vendors, I'm going to dig in my heels and believe strongly that single ERP, integrated ERP, that's the answer. That's the Kool-Aid I've been drinking for however many years I've been in the industry. If I'm in that space, uh, conversely, if I work for, you know, Salesforce or Workday or one of these best of breed providers, I'm probably going to dig in my heels and say it's best of breed all the way. So, you know, you kind of have to look at, you know, who's, who's paying for the message, you know, who's funding the message. And that's why you get, I think why you get such strong um, opinions on both sides. It's a lot like politics. It reminds me of us politics and, and global politics in many ways. It's sort of like you're one side or the other, there's no in between and you have to look at everyone's biases and that sort of thing. So, um, so I think that's the backdrop. I don't know that it really answers the question other than just to explain why people have such strong opinions on this on this debate. Absolutely. I think that makes a lot of sense. And to, to Greg's point, you know, it's really about understanding your unique needs. Um, I know my favorite, one of my favorite Greg Benton quotes is, it's not best of breed, it's best for you. So that's kind of the approach that, that we always take, what is best for you as an organization. So I'm curious so to hear what Greg was going to say, though. What was your response, Greg? My response is is really just that we uh, five years ago were looking for a unified data system, and I think that anymore the uh, ability to create an interoperable system, and as we were talking about it earlier, sequence in the uh, the move to the cloud or the move to you know a full trans transformation is making it so that people have to consider other systems that they have in play. Um, on-premise, cloud-based, and a unified data structure is, is no longer just requisite within a single software system. You can have multiple software systems and legacy systems all interoperating together. And there are a lot of tools in the uh, ecosystem and the marketplace to accomplish that. Yep, yeah. that interoperability certainly yeah. is, is critical. So... Um, Cool. Well, we're going to end on a, a big question, too. So hopefully this sparks kind of a closing conversation. Um, but I'm going to give this one to you, Eric. Um, this or that, change management or technology adoption. So like when implementing um, digital transformation, what aspect do you believe is more critical? Effective change management strategies or seamless technology adoption? Uh, hands down, change management. Um Although I'll say technology adoption is typically a subset of change management. So it's also a cop-out answer too, because I get to, choose, <laughs> I get to choose both and you didn't even realize it. I'm choosing both by saying change management. Oh, blew my mind. <laughs> but, uh, but I would say in general, like, you know, if you had to choose over like a, a broad comprehensive change program versus really good tech adoption, mm -hmm. uh, even though there's overlap between the two, I'd say the broad change management is going to be more effective because it's 
it's usually not the tech adoption that's the hardest part. I mean, that is important. It is difficult to learn a new system and to understand new workflows in a system. But people will typically figure that stuff out. I don't want to say easily, but they'll figure it out eventually. Where, where they struggle, though, is the it's the cultural changes. It's the organizational changes to my job. It's the um, why are we doing this? You know, I don't want to do this. I don't want to change. It's that push back that resistance that creates problems. It's not that I don't, I can't learn. I can learn mm -hmm. if I want to. The problem is I don't want to learn or I don't want to accept the change. And so change management overcomes that prerequisite to tech adoption. Um, you could have all the great tech adoption in the world, but if you haven't addressed those more fundamental issues, then the tech adoption efforts are going to fall flat. Well said, well said. Anybody else have a reaction to that one? I would just agree and say that um, you can have the best teacher in the world, but if you're not prepared to be a student that, um, you know, you're not going to be able to learn. So totally agree. Very wise. Very wise. All right. Great stuff. Thank you, Kyler and third stage consulting team. Great discussion and really fun stuff. Uh, I learned a lot. Hopefully the audience did too. And uh, that's uh, sort of a non-traditional way to cover a lot of those, those uh, trending and interesting topics. So really appreciate it. Uh, we've got a lot more left in the show. In fact, uh, we're going to play you a, a case study here next um, after a quick break, it's a case study that is going to be featured in my new book called The Final Countdown. You can learn more about that book at thefinalcountdown.com. Uh, it's a book that's being published on August 25th via uh, Amazon and Kindle and other formats. Um, we're going to play you a clip of an interview I did with Kyler recently to round out the book and sort of complete the book via a case study. So there's a case study we feature toward the end of the book. And uh, she interviewed me to get the content for that portion of the book. So we're going to play you that clip, and, and it's a really interesting case study. It's so interesting that I, I uh, we wanted to include it in the book. So we'll play you that clip here in just a moment. But first, we'll take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. We'll be right back. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn to Third Stage Consulting Group. Third Stage's independent and technology-agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstageconsulting.com. Welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 128. My name is Eric Kimberling here with Kyler Cheatham. You can find new episodes of this show every Wednesday, so be sure to subscribe wherever you listen or watch. I'm excited to play you this, this next clip. This is a, an interview that you did with me recently, Kyler, to help me finish the book, uh, The Final Countdown, which is released on August 25th. And the last missing piece we had to do to finish the book was include a case study. And so the question you asked me was, you know, think of a the best example of the most successful transformation you've been involved with and let's unpack it. And that was sort of the, the mission statement you laid out for, for us. And that's what we did. And then we recorded it and then we translated it and wrote this into the book based on that conversation. So let's go ahead and roll the clip. And uh, this is the uh, case study 
of a, a large organization that has recently gone through digital transformation. And this is sort of my take and my response to some of, some of Kyler's questions related to that. So let's roll the cliff. So Eric, um, I know you have a new book coming out. Um, so congratulations on that. That's very exciting. Thank and you. as a part of the book, we talk about some real kind of client work examples of a successful digital transformation. So the, the book format, and it's really good because I've read it, is um, three pillars, which you you talk a lot about in um, digital transformation. So the people, the process, and the technology. So today I'm going to kind of dig into the case study that you showcase as really a synergy between all of those. So can you give us kind of just a, a top line um, overview of what the project was? Sure. So probably the best example of how an organization has effectively conveyed or, or follow the people process and technology work streams and the strategy work streams that we talk about in the book. Um, one example of that, or, or probably the best example I could think of is a, a large steel manufacturer that uh, has been a client of ours for, for some time. And they went through a, a global transformation uh, involving ERP software as well as other technologies. And in that implementation, which is a multi-year uh, implementation throughout their entire um, global operations. Um, during that time, they they um, really demonstrated these different pillars that we talk about in the book. And if we start with the the people side of the equation, they manage this piece extremely well. And I think ultimately this is probably the number one reason why they were successful in their transformation. And when I say they handled the people side of it, I have to uh, caveat it first by saying that they they were allergic, and I believe still are allergic to the word change management. They don't like the term, and they really just don't like the the fluffy concept of change management. But they were highly effective at it, so it's sort of an irony uh, in their in their culture. <laughs> interesting. Okay. Yeah, it was very interesting. Um, but it, in this case, uh, the reason they were so effective is that they. First of all, probably most importantly, they were very aligned and they are very aligned as an organization. Uh, they have a very strong culture. They have a very clear set of values. Um, when you meet different people, different leaders, different frontline employees throughout the organization, they just feel like a very consistent company. It feels like you're dealing with the same company. And it's really hard to explain and get your hands on or your arms around articulating what exactly culture means and why they're they're so culturally aligned, but they just, they are. And, you know, so they're, they've got a leadership team that's rowing in the same direction. They have very clear objectives and goals as an organization. They know who they are. They know what they want to be. They know what they don't want to be. And so they have this just clear direction alignment, and that really trickles down throughout the whole organization. And so you look at just that as a backdrop. That's the backdrop they had going into their transformation was a very aligned organization, and, and that is very powerful. Most organizations have a certain degree of misalignment, which creates the opposite of that, which is instead of having tailwinds that that help you, now you've got headwinds that you've got to work through. Mm -hmm. And so that's why so many organizations need to address that alignment piece before they get too far into transformation because they just won't be likely to succeed if they don't. So that people side was was highly effective. Um, they also really focused on you know, how the technology is going to impact people's jobs. And so they focused on clearly painting a picture of how jobs were going to change and what the roles were going to look like. Um, trying to think of what else there on the people side. When it came to training, they were very effective at, at sort of integrating technology training with business process and operational training. Um, and they took a very active role 
and leading a lot of that training themselves. So they were able to incorporate more of the the operational um, nuances and the language and the nomenclature that they use as an organization. They were able to incorporate that into the training to where people could make more sense of it than mm -hmm. if you just had a software vendor do it or if you focused more on just mm -hmm. the technology training. So those are just a few examples of how they address the, the people side. Um, on the process side, too, similarly, they were very much aligned in terms of what their business processes are and were what they wanted their processes to look like in the future. And it really gave them a lot of clear direction on what sorts of technology would or wouldn't fit with their business. And they let the business operations really drive and dictate how they deployed technology rather than the opposite, which is a common mistake organizations make, which is to focus on the technology first and then figure out the processes later. They, they did not do that because uh, that's something we talk about in the book. You don't want yeah. to do that. You want to talk mm -hmm. about and focus on your business processes first. So they had that clear roadmap and blueprint for who they are and what they wanted to be operationally. And that provided that roadmap or some clarity on how they deployed uh, technology. Um, speaking of technology, the, on the third piece, the technology mm -hmm. piece, um, this is one where they were very strong at managing that work stream or that that uh, pillar as well. And the reason they were so good at it is because they didn't get fooled by emerging technologies and cool bells and whistles that maybe their organization wasn't ready for and may not be the technology may not be appropriate for them. In other words, they they focused on deploying technology that allowed them to improve and enhance their operations where they wanted to improve and enhance mm -hmm. their operations. They didn't get caught up in all kinds of distractions and bells and whistles that didn't apply to them. They were highly focused on what they were trying to accomplish with the transformation, and they didn't really deviate uh, outside of that. Um, just to give you an example, too, of how strong that oversight or that management of the technology workstream was, is in the midst of this multi-year journey that they went through, their software vendor migrated or had sort of transitioned their flagship product to the cloud. Mm -hmm. But the client was implementing an on-premise, you know, a legacy on-prem version of the technology. The software vendor tried very hard to get them to switch midstream to the cloud solution because that's what they were pushing, mm -hmm. that's what they're promoting. And we helped the client go through a detailed evaluation of that cloud solution and ultimately determined that it just wasn't a fit and there were too many mm -hmm. gaps in the maturity yeah. of that product at that time. So they opted, despite the pressure from the software vendor and the insistence from the software vendor, they opted to stay with the older version of the software. Now you may wonder, you know, why does deploying old software equal success? But in this mm -hmm. case, it did because that product was a better fit. It was more mature and it, it satisfied their their uh, their needs better than than the the cloud version. Um, the other thing they did very well, which is sort of related to technology, but it's also sort of related back to the people side of things, is they were highly effective at managing their system integrator. In other words, mm -hmm. they were not managed by their system integrator, they managed the system integrator. And that mm -hmm. sounds like basic common sense, but so many organizations, most yeah. organizations don't do that well. They defer too much to the SI because they don't know what they don't know. And they just assume that the expert's gonna come in and take care of mm -hmm. things for them. And that's typically a recipe for disaster because now you've outsourced something that you should really be owning internally, which is what do you want to be when you grow up? How are you going to mm -hmm. deploy technology? All that good stuff. You still need those outside experts, but you can manage them well if you do it right. And that's something they did do very well here. 
Um, so much so that they had deliberately decided that they were going to slow down the pace of their project because they felt like the changes were coming too fast and they weren't adopting the changes mm -hmm. as well as they could. So they slowed down the project and deliberately extended the timeline. And in the process of that, they actually scaled back the staffing of their mm -hmm. technical implementer. And that's, to me, a very bold move. It's something that more organizations should do, but mm -hmm. too many organizations are intimidated or afraid to do that because largely because their technical partner, their technical implementation partners will push hard to make sure that doesn't happen because it, it hurts their revenue on the, on the yeah. implementer side. So they they don't care about stuff like that. They care about their business, making their business better. They don't care about politics and what other third party interests are. They want to focus on making their business better. And so they throttle back the run rate of their technical implementer to sort of match their tempo where how they wanted the, the process to go. So that's, you know, that one right there is, again, related to technology. It's related to people. It's also related to overall project management and project strategy. Mm -hmm. Bless you. And, you. Uh, and that sort of thing. So. Those are a few of the things that they yeah. did very well that sort of tie back to the the pillars that we talk about in the book. Absolutely. We're here playing you a clip of our digital transformation case study involving one of our clients, and it's one of my favorite projects that I've been involved with. We've got a lot more to cover, but first we're going to take a quick break. You're listening to Transformation Ground Control. If you are aiming for transformation success, turn a third stage consulting group. Third Stage's independent and technology agnostic consulting team helps clients define their digital strategies, define their roadmaps, and manage their transformations. With offices in the US, Europe, and Australia, our team helps the world's most forward-thinking organizations through their transformation pitfalls and risks. If you are embarking on a digital transformation or business change initiative, contact Third Stage Consulting to see how we can help you reach the third stage of transformation success. Learn more about us and download independent reports, videos, and other best practices at thirdstage-consulting.com. Hello, welcome back to Transformation Ground Control, episode number 128. I'm here with Kyla Cheatham and we're playing you a clip of a recent interview she did with me to ask me questions about a digital transformation case study. So let's jump back into it. So can you tell us kind of what third stage's role was um, in helping them? Because they sound like a very savvy client. Um, yes. And, and you know, that third stage work can kind of enhance that and achieve great uh, digital transformation success. Uh, so can you kind of lay out how, how your team worked with them? Sure. You're First of all, you're absolutely right that they are very savvy and in fact, so savvy that we would have made more revenue from them had they not been so savvy because oh, you yeah. know, you, as a consultant, mm -hmm. if client needs more help, you can bill more hours and, and you make more revenue. So it did affect us. I wouldn't say negatively, but we didn't, this wasn't a client where we totally maximized our revenue and mm -hmm. it became a really huge project for us because the client needed us so much. It was, it was the opposite. They, they're very selective and targeted in how they use consultants. In fact, they they openly admit that they do not like consultants. So mm -hmm. that's the irony of this client. I love this client. And, mm -hmm. and what's funny is they don't, they love us, but they don't like consultants. Mm -hmm. So uh, <laughs> uh, make of it what you will. Um, can you repeat the question again? Now I already forgot what your question no, was. Yeah, no, no problem. I mean, I feel like third stage were more advisors, you know, coaches oh, well. through that. Um, and yeah. so, so uh, how did you kind of fall into the, the different roles of advising them through this, um, this project? 
Yeah, thank you. I knew it was a real basic question that I was forgetting. <laughs> um, yeah, so we we had a lot of different roles. I mean, it, it began with helping them with the validation of their decision of which vendor they're mm-hmm. going with. They'd already sort of done a lot of the due diligence themselves, and they they thought they knew what they wanted, and and they wanted us to validate or sort of poke holes in what they were thinking. So early on, before they started the implementation, we were validating their decision as well as helping them negotiate with the software vendor. That's where we first started mm-hmm. working with them. But then through the implementation, we helped them with a lot of different things. I mean, there was uh, some uh, change management type of work we did, even though they didn't like that word change management. They didn't want to call mm-hmm. it change management. We were effectively doing change management for them or helping them with it. Um, we helped them with um, redefining or redesigning their IT organization and what mm-hmm. their future state IT organization was going to look like You know, as, as part of this overall transformation. Um, we also helped them figure out in parallel with the core ERP being deployed, we helped them figure out how uh, business intelligence uh, would sort of be able to consolidate information across the enterprise, because even though they're rolling out a common platform for most of the organization, there were still parts of it where they intentionally left them on their old legacy mm-hmm. systems with a different vendor. And so we helped them with a, B, a business intelligence deployment that would help give them that global real-time visibility without necessarily having to have the same ERP system across the enterprise. Um, and then, of course, we helped them with a lot of project management, advisory services, mm-hmm. making sure they kept the project on track um, throughout the throughout the implementation as well, sort of your traditional implementation project management. So there's a lot of different roles we played. But again, they they managed the project. They mm-hmm. they did not outsource the entire project to us. Some of our clients do. Some of our clients will say, hey, third stage, we just want you to take mm-hmm. the whole thing. And while that does help our revenue on a per project basis, it's not ideal. And we usually advise against it of going too far, of depending too much on consultants. Um, so you've got to find that right balance. And I think they were very good at finding that balance mm-hmm. of selectively using that outside help, but leaning more on their internal staff where they could. Yeah, that partnership level and still internalizing those objectives is so important. So what role or how important was your your stance as an independent advisor and technology agnostic in this project? It was extremely important in this case. I mean, it, it usually is for, for most clients that hire us. But in their case, it was even more important to have that independence is partly because Again, this is a very savvy client that doesn't drink the Kool-Aid. They don't mm-hmm. buy the marketing messaging. They're very skeptical of outside third parties. So they're already sort of had their BS radars on. Mm-hmm. And so they're looking for someone who can help them decipher and understand their BS radars a little bit more too. Um, but in addition to that, you know, not only are they sort of a a savvy maverick sort of an organization mm-hmm. that's going to do what they want to do and what's best for them, regardless of what anyone tells them. Um, in addition to that, they also had um, multiple software vendors mm-hmm. and software solutions they're deploying. And, and whenever you have that sort of an environment, you get vendors that are sort of playing turf wars and fighting mm-hmm. and competing to expand their footprints. And it just turns into a, a battle for things that have nothing to do with the client. It's more about maximizing their own self-interest. So having an independent advisor throughout the entire implementation that can help navigate that and sort of keep things on mm-hmm. track and keep things aligned with what the business needs were, not what the software vendor needs were. Uh, something that's very important and that that undercurrent and that outside force that vendors and implementers bring to the table mm-hmm. is very strong and people don't realize how much impact yeah. and influence that can have on your project uh, negatively so having that independent advisor throughout the implementation is extremely important it was extremely important to them 
Absolutely. And and you talk a lot in the book, which is called um, The Final Countdown, Achieving the Third Stage of Digital Transformation. What was their third stage? What really got them to that um, third stage that so many so many clients don't reach when they go through a digital transformation project? Yeah, that's a that's a great question. I mean, for them, you know, they're a they're a highly efficient organization. I mean, they are focused on extreme efficiency um their their corporate staff their headquarters was very slim it's probably the leanest corporate headquarters for a large organization i've ever mm-hmm. seen i mean they're a fortune 500 organization but they only had i think less than 200 people at their corporate office in their corporate staff and when you go into their office um it, it does not feel like a fortune 500 company at all it feels like you're dealing with a small mom and pop you know, maybe a mid-sized company, but nothing to the mm-hmm. magnitude of what they are. And, they, and part of that's because they're very, um, part of their culture is to be very humble and uh, nondescript and not at all flashy, that sort of thing. Mm-hmm. They don't even have a, they don't even have the name of their company on the outside of the building. Oh, I mean, that's how, that's how nondescript they are. Mm-hmm. Um, but to answer your question, how they define the third, the third stage of success. I mean, they, I would, I would argue they were already starting and say the second stage. Mm-hmm. I mean, they, they didn't have to go through Part of the advantage they have is they had already done a lot of the legwork to get them to say the second stage without ever starting the, the true transformation and so the transformation became more about how do we continue um building on our strengths and enhancing our strengths by becoming mm-hmm. even more efficient and becoming uh, more integrated as an organization and starting for them a big part of their challenge was finding the right balance between remaining decentralized because they've grown through a lot of acquisition. Mm-hmm. That's been their growth strategy has been to go out and acquire other companies and then consolidate into their business. However, as part of that acquisition strategy, they they tended to be very decentralized and they tended to leave those acquisitions as independent entities just with a different name. And so they were, as part of this transformation, they were trying to bend the needle and sort of move mm-hmm. the pendulum back towards more consolidation and standardization, even though those are two words they hate as well, by the way, they do not like those words. And I we literally cannot say those words around them because it was a trigger. Mm-hmm. So so for us um, or for them, reaching that third stage was really getting to that extreme efficiency and getting to that mm-hmm. balance that they're looking for between decentralization and entrepreneurial and flexible versus standardized and consolidated and so it wasn't a i would say one thing that they did well is they weren't looking to knock this out of the park and hit a hit a home run yeah you know in one fell swoop they were looking at this as sort of an incremental journey towards where they're already heading and that just sort of matched their culture it matched their tempo and they really aligned this whole project and expectations around this project around that and ultimately that's what helped them get to the third stage of success even though you could argue they didn't get as much business value as maybe they could have if they would have deployed different or more technologies Mm -hmm. or whatever the case may be um the good news is they they optimized their spend on the project and they got the value they were looking for and that's ultimately what the third stage of success is is all about that's a a great way to put it it sounds like they stayed true to their identity and really focused on on their objectives and goals um so what a great success story definitely um and it's it's one that will go in your book so in the last couple minutes here while we have you eric for this interview is can you tell us a little bit about the book why you wrote it um and just let us know how we might be able to pre-order sure well, I've I've always wanted to write a book. It's just been uh, it's taken me a while to get there, and so um, 
the reason that that's part of you know part of it's just a personal goal I've always had, but also because um, you know people would ask, do you have a book or do you recommend any books mm -hmm. on digital transformation? And I never had a good answer because I don't know of any like really truly good books about digital transformation that focus on it that aren't textbooks. You know, it's it's, yeah. it's something that can be written in more layman's terms, and that's really what I wanted to create with this. And ultimately, I think that's what we did was created a, a easy to read book that has a lot of depth and substance, but it's not academic and overly, you know, it's not up in the clouds and ivory towers is based on frontline experience. And that's really what I wanted to do is share that, mm -hmm. you know, those decades of experience that both our team and I have. Absolutely. I mean, it's a great book. And I think the importance of it is it is truly independent. You do reference software selection and, and, um, say some of your top systems that you've worked with like you do in a lot of your thought leadership but there was no um, financial relationships between anyone else except you know you in third stage and um, writing the book uh, so well, it's definitely a, a great book highly recommend it you can visit um, finalcountdown.com and you can also fill out the form here that's linked below uh, to get information on pre-ordering it. It will launch in August of 2023. Um, so definitely very excited. Uh, I know a lot of you in Eric's audience actually voted on the cover art and we we chose the one that, that you guys liked. So you've been a part of it as well. So uh, congratulations again, Eric, and thank you for sharing uh, this great case study with us. All right, good stuff. Well, thank you, Kyler, for that. Uh interview in that clip. And uh, again, if you're interested in my new book coming out August 25th uh, across the world, be sure to check out thefinalcountdown.com. That is the name of the book and the name of the website as well. Um, so be sure to check that out. You can get on a, a pre-registration list. If you go to thefinalcountdown.com, you'll get notified when we do the pre-sale uh, in August. And then the official launch date to the public is on August 25th. So be sure to check it out and uh, hope you enjoy the book once it's out. So uh, thank you for being here for another great episode of Transformation Ground Control. I appreciate everyone's involvement and engagement. Thank you, Kyler, for all the great uh, content that you provided here today. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing you all next week on episode number 129 of Transformation Ground Control. In the meantime, have a great week, and we'll see you next time on this podcast. Take care. Wow, this is a fun one. <laughs> I am That's just okay. all over the place. Hello, welcome back to. Man, man, I cannot talk to. Try it again. <laughs>